If you have your Bibles, I do encourage you to get them on out. I say that a lot, and every once in a while I just feel it necessary to remind you why physical books are just different. They make us feel like it's in our hands, it's present with us. So I do encourage you, if you have if you have a Bible, to bring it on to church and get it out. If you're the visual type, don't be afraid to mark it up. If you don't have a Bible, um, I like buying Bibles, and if you want a Bible, I'll buy you one. Uh, that's the concern. So talk to me afterward, and I'll buy you a Bible. I love it. All right, Romans 15, verses 8 to 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his peoples. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Lord, again, we ask that your Spirit would uh, be present with us today. So, verse 13, in, in a lot of ways, and I'll explain what I mean by in a lot of ways, Mark's kind of the, the end of the body of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the Bible, we talk about how it's made up of a bunch of different books. And we use the word books because uh, books originally just meant writings, and, and that made more sense. But now it's a little bit, it makes a little bit less sense because what we're looking at aren't, they're not really books like we would think of books, but they're there are different types of writing and different types of literature. And most of the New Testament, in fact, really everything from Romans on to the book of Revelation, including Revelation, by the way, is actually a letter. Which means that it was, it was something written for a particular purpose to a particular group of people for, for, by a particular author. Right? So you got a person like Paul. He's writing to particular churches in Rome in the first century, in the mid 50s in the first century for the reasons that we've been talking about over the past, um, what has been, two years since we've been studying through Romans. This is not, it, it, it matters to understand what kind of literature this is. But anyway, Paul writes this letter and at the beginning he uses uh, a typical letter format. Actually, he does through the whole letter. But in the beginning, he says, Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. So he gives his name. He kind of gives his title. And then he says, I'm writing to the churches in Rome. He gives his audience. And then he gives what, what we would maybe call a, kind of a greeting. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 7 of chapter 1. 
And if we were to compare it, now, now there's, there's a reality that 2,000 years of, of history has changed literature somewhat. But if I were to write a letter today, and I know that would be shocking because we don't write letters today. But if I were to write a letter today, I would, I would typically start it by putting my name at the top, Ryan. And then underneath it, I probably would put my title, Senior Pastor. Maybe I put my, my address or something like that, depending on how formal the letter is. And then I would maybe address it to who I'm going to write to. If I'm going to write to Christ Church, I'd write Christ Church or to the members of Christ Church. And then maybe I'd put your address. Or if I'm writing to an individual, I'd put your address. And then I would say, dear so-and-so. That's what Paul has done in the beginning of his letter. Hi, Paul. An apostle. I'm writing to Rome. Grace and peace. Dear. And then he jumps into the body, sort of. Paul does this very unusual thing, at least unusual in relation to other first century letters. He starts almost all of his letters, except for Galatians, which he doesn't do it in Galatians because he's really mad. But he starts all of his letters outside of Galatians with a thanksgiving prayer or hymn or something along those lines, depending on which letter it is. He does this, he does this in Romans, verse 8, he says, first, I thank my God, and goes on. I'm not going to get into it. And then he gets into the actual body of the letter. And then the body of the letter makes up most of the body, or most of the letter. And then at the end, he concludes. And again, there's patterns. We, in today's society, we would put sincerely Ryan Klotzel. And maybe we sign it. In the ancient world, it was a little bit different. It was a little more complex. Almost every ancient letter would conclude with something what's called, we would call a doxology or a benediction. Even outside of a Christian letter, anybody who wrote a letter would end it by praising whatever God they served. Paul does this in verses 25 to 27. But another thing that Paul does is he almost always gives us some kind of greeting to particular people. In Romans, it's an entire chapter. Romans 16 is a bunch of names, and I cannot wait to preach on the, on the list of names. He gives this bunch of names. He talks about all these different people and all, their, all the different roles they have. But then again, Paul adds this unique little flavor. He always gives a clue about what he's going to do. He starts talking about where he's, where he's at or what he's, uh, where he's about to go. And in this case, he says, hey, I, I want to come to you, churches in Rome, on my way to, the, to plant churches in Spain. Okay. So I, I say all this to give us a, a literary clue as to where we're at in the movement of Paul's thought. Today's passage really, in almost every way, marks the conclusion of the reasons why Paul writes to the church in Rome. Meaning, in a lot of ways, this matters. It matters a lot. In fact, it matters so much that we could compare it to what Paul says in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are Paul's thesis statements for the book. It's a passage that if you, if you don't have it memorized, maybe you should. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And if you would take this and maybe expand it and lay it on top of the letter to the Romans, you could see pretty, pretty accurately the, the movement that Paul has, has gone through. Paul starts this letter by explaining to us, what, well, what is the gospel? And in a lot of ways, that encompasses chapters 1 all the way through chapter 11. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, our Savior. In the first four chapters or so, four or five chapters, Paul just crushes us with this just heavy realization that we are desperate sinners. That we as creations of God immediately turned our backs on our Creator, spat in His face, and decided we would do it better. We are sinners, condemned not, not by God, but by our own actions, Paul says. We are in desperate need of a Savior, and that Savior actually cannot be us. In fact, it's almost, it's almost our efforts to be our own saviors that cause us to sin more. When we are shown the law, what does the law do? This is what you should be doing. And we go, okay, I should be doing this. And what do I do? I, I do the opposite. In fact, the knowledge of our, of our brokenness really only drives us to more brokenness. I cannot save myself. I am, not, I am incapable of saving myself. And, and, and maybe at this point we start to question, where is this good news that Paul keeps talking about? Well, the good news is what follows. The good news is that, that God in His love, God in His mercy, God in His, in His grace, sends His Son, His only Son, to the earth to suffer and die to be us. To take our place. To be what Paul says, a propitiation, a, a sacrifice that is satisfactory to the God whom we have wronged. And he does so not, not because we will be good because of it. Not because even that we can be good because of it. But because and only because he is good. God sends his son to die on the cross. And he freely offers this gift of salvation to us wretched sinners. Paul tells us that we are justified, we are set right in the eyes of God through faith, through our relinquishment of control over the salvation that we desperately need over to Christ. Paul tells us that then we are filled with the Spirit. That this good news isn't just about a moment in our lives where we are, we are at one point away from God, separated from God by an endless chasm, to at the next moment embraced in His arms. It's not just about that, but it's in fact about this transformation that happens from this point until we one day enter into heaven with God. This is called sanctification, where He will change and transform us by the, by the mere fact that the Spirit of God dwells in us now. We are changed. We are transformed. And for many chapters, Paul explains to us and shows us the dichotomy, the, the, the dual nature of this reality, how we still live in this world, this fishbowl of, of sin and death and pollution, and how we are bound to the flesh and we can't 
really escape it. And so we have, I, I, I want to do what's right, but my flesh says no, and I ultimately I continue to, but, but God has justified me. And God continues to work in me. I have been saved by faith. I am being transformed by the Spirit so that one day I might stand glorified with Him in heaven. But Paul, in chapter 1, he says, he says a few things more. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then he goes on. He says, for it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and the righteous shall live by faith. When Paul says this, he's, he's talking about, okay, what's the practical realities? What, what actually happens? We talk in the first 11 chapters of Romans about the, the theological implications, the knowledge of all this stuff, and that's good, and that's, that's nice, but what, what happens because of it? How do I change what's, what, what is physically going to matter once I know this? In chapter 12, he starts to tell us this. Chapter 12, he starts to talk about something very important. He starts to talk about love and what love looks like. I think for Paul, we could summarize what it means to be saved with that one word. We are loved, and so therefore we love. Again, as I've said probably in every single sermon since we've been in, cha- and since we've been in these last five chapters of Romans, love is not what our culture says love is. In our culture, love is erotic, love is sexual, love is, a, is an emotional, chemical response. That's not what God's love is. God's love is different. God's love is a covenant. God's love is, is, is a permanent, a fixed decision. It doesn't waver because of the failings of the person that we love. It doesn't even matter that the person we love does or does not love us in response. In fact, that's what, that's what the good news really says, right? That God loves us so much that it doesn't matter if we love him first. Or maybe even that we love him ever. God loves us so much that in the, in the pit and in the depths of the depravity of our souls, that's when he sends his son. And so chapter 12 and following, Paul talks about what love looks like. He says, hey, here's what you want to do. Do not be conformed. Verse 2 of chapter 12. Do not not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing you may discern what what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul tells us that love is service in chapter 12. Love manifests itself in serving others. In fact, this is probably the first picture that we see when Christ comes into the world. He immediately starts serving those who are around him. In the Last Supper, the night before Jesus dies, he he does something that that even the servants don't want to do. He washes the feet of his disciples. And this is a picture that we don't quite understand because we walk around with, with shoes on our feet. Imagine for just a second walking around the Wayne County Fair with no shoes on. And having somebody that you care about come and then wipe the dirt and the filth 
off of your feet, and you've only just scratched the surface of what it would have been like to wash feet in the ancient world. It's gross. It's nasty. And it was reserved for the lowest of servants. And Jesus comes and he says, he says look, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter gets all mad at him. He's like, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, yes, I can and I will because that's who, I'm, who I am. That's what I'm supposed to do. And Peter's like, well, if you're going to do that, then wash my whole body. He's like, you don't get it. Love is service. But it's not just service. It's sacrificial service. Service that leads itself or, or moves, its, moves the servant to sacrifice of himself or herself. Service doesn't look itself. Service only looks at others. And then in chapter 13, Paul talks about submission, submission to authorities. And, and we all go, wait a minute, Paul. What are you talking about? I think what Paul ultimately gets at in chapter 13 is he's talking about service. He's talking about submission, excuse me, in relation to his will. See, God is, God is ultimately uh, smarter than you and I. Right? Yeah. At least that's what we, that's what we understand. That's how we understand God. He's, he's, he, he knows more. God's plans are so far and above ours that sometimes it doesn't make any sense to submit. God says, my plans, my purposes, my ways are different than yours. And oftentimes what God does is he raises up people who don't seem to make sense. And so we submit to them, not for their sake, but for the glory of God and for God's glorious plans to come into action. So love submits, love serves, and love submits. And oftentimes that submission is to our detriment. That's where things get difficult, right? Just imagine for a moment a, a president of the United States that every single person in America said, yeah, I like this guy. By the way, that's never happened. Never in the history of the world has it ever happened that a leader, you looked at the leader and you went, that guy is who we want leading. At some point, submission is a detriment to us. But we're not submitting to authorities for authority's sake. We're submitting to authorities for God's sake, for his plan's sake. And then in, verse, in chapter 14, Paul, again, he shifts and he says, love is now patient. But love isn't just patient that eventually somebody's going to get around to believing what I believe. But in fact, Paul says, he says, actually, what, what it is, is that you, you need to be patient. You need to be tolerant for people who have different, opinion, uh, different opinions than you. And many of us know how hard it is to know somebody else is wrong and still be all right with that. This is where the body of Paul's letter really starts to make sense to me. Why Paul is even writing to the Romans. Paul's writing to the Romans most likely because he's responding to a messenger that is sent to him. That, that messenger might be uh, who's mentioned as the, as the penman of the letter in verse 22 of 16. I, Tertius, 
or Tertius. I don't know how to say it. Hopefully I'll figure that out before I preach on it. He says, I, I, T, who wrote this letter, he's just writing what Paul dictates, but he's probably the one who came with Paul, who came to talk to Paul about what was going on in the church in Rome, and Paul's like, okay, write this letter down and take it back to him. I might be wrong, it doesn't really matter. But See, what was happening in Rome at the time, or not at the time, but previous to, to this letter being written, is that Paul, or that Rome, uh, the Roman emperor, I think it was Claudius at the time, he, he sends the Jews out of the city. And he sends the Jews out of the city because in 70 AD, the, the, the Jewish zealots, they have risen up against the Roman Empire, right? Little, teeny, tiny Israel says, I don't want to be ruled by Rome anymore. Rome that literally conquered the entire known world. Little, itty-bitty Jewish zealots, they said, we're, gonna, we're not having this anymore. And Rome said, yeah, you are and squashed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. That's in 70 AD. This is about 15 to 20 years previous, whenever all this tension is starting to rise. And in, and in Rome, there's a, there's a fairly big Jewish population. And at the time, Christians are just part of the Jewish religion. And, and there's this tension. And Claudius, Emperor Claudius, he's like, he's like, all right, we're not having this. Get out. There's two options. Either I slaughter you all or you leave. And so all the Jews said, okay, we'll leave. And so they leave. And so in the church at that time, there were a lot of Jews, mostly Jews, in fact. And then there were a lot of Gentiles. And so now all the Jews who were probably the first converts, who are probably the leaders of the church, they all leave. And so what happens is there's this, this change. We are uh, we're in Wayne County, if you didn't know that. We, this church, Christ Church in Sterling, Wayne County. Um, most of us in this room have lived in Wayne County or Medina County or a surrounding county most, if not all, of our lives. Most people. There are a few exceptions. All of us live at least around a farming community. We maybe, maybe aren't farmers, and there are a few farmers in here, but we're maybe not farmers ourselves, but we've seen cows before in real life. And I know that sounds silly, but... There are many people who've never seen cows before in their entire lives. And so we do things in this church because the reality is, is it makes, makes many of us feel comfortable. We sing certain songs because it fits within our, our worldview. We, we do certain things because it makes sense to us. We have church service at 1030 because that's when most people are comfortable being awake on a Sunday morning. And you, you, you make think that's silly, but, but that's the reality. If I go to the inner city, where the population is predominantly African American, for example, maybe not, not, not all of the inner city is that, but I'm saying church is going to be different. Things are going to be different. We might not have the same songs. We might sing different songs. There might be more energy. There might be less energy. There might be a thousand different things that, were, that, that are different. And so this is what happens to the church in Rome. The Jewish population, they're like, get out. Overnight, it went from a split congregation, maybe 40% Gentiles, 50% Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and the rest Jewish. They're all gone. So people have to step up into positions of leadership, service changes, Things are different. They, they eat meat now because not, not a single Gentile has ever thought, I probably shouldn't eat that meat. 
that was sacrificed to an idol. And five years later, Claudius is like, all right, you can come home. Come back into Rome. Build your, build your houses again. Or come back to your houses. You know, Put your businesses back up. And all those Jews come back to the churches that they once worshipped at. And they're like, oh man, everything's different. What does Paul say? Welcome them. Chapter 14, verse 1. For as the one who is weak in faith, which is probably the Jews, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Not to fight. Not to fight about how church is, is run anymore. Not to, not to bicker about the different things that we do. Again, it's not moral. It's not morality. It's, it's opinions. So love is patient. Love recognizes that we're different. That's hard. Then Paul ends his whole letter, or whole body of his letter, not the whole letter, but the whole body of his letter, with this very strange conclusion. Again, if we look at verse 8, it says, For I, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Here's what Paul says. Christ came to the Jews to fulfill the scriptures. Which isn't really surprising to us. right? Which is why Paul only gives us a half a sentence. He gives us you know, one verse. Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Circumcised being Jewish. To fulfill, to show his truthfulness to the promises to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, we just finished Genesis, right? Abraham is given this promise. Go to this, this land that you've never seen before. I will show it to you. I will give it to you. Promise one, I'll give you land. I'll give you descendants, numerous, tons, thousands and thousands of descendants. So much you can't even count them. And through the descendants, I will bless the world. Isaac receives the same promise. Uh, Jacob receives this promise. The twelve sons receive this promise. The nation of Israel receives this promise again and again and again. And all through the Old Testament, we see these, these hints and these, these pictures of this Messiah that will one day come. Messiah, by the way, being the, the Hebrew word that we translate in Greek as Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, came to fulfill the Old Testament. He came to be the Messiah to rescue the people of Israel, to rescue the Jews. And this is obvious. Again, this makes sense to us. But here's what Paul does. He goes, okay, yeah, that's good. But there's more. Verse 9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercies. Christ came to become a servant for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And this, this should also, by the way, not be a surprise. But Paul recognizes it might be a surprise. You might, you might not have read the Old Testament recognizing that, that from the very beginning of time, God has planned to rescue all of his creation, not just a particular family. 
He says, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. By the way, this is a quote from 2 Samuel 22, verse 50, and Psalms 18, verse 49. And he says, and again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalms 117, verse 1. And again, verse 12, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule, you guessed it, the Gentiles. In him with the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Why does Paul do this? Paul does this because it's obvious that Jesus, is, who is Jewish, is a Jewish Messiah. He's been talked about for the Jews for literally 2,000 years. More than that, really. We can get kind of high and mighty on ourselves and not start, and start to think that we're the ones who are right and they're the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who have to become us. This is why Paul's so mad in the book of Galatians. That if you're not Jewish, you can't be Christian. I was like, no, that's not what, that's not what the Old Testament says. In fact, in fact, if you go back, now I'm speaking on my own here, not speaking for Paul. If you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they eat a fruit off of this tree. That God said, this is the one and only rule that you have. You can eat everything else. Everything else is yours. You have dominion over everything else. There's one thing that I keep to myself, and it's this fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Or the knowledge of good and evil. The tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I got it. And man says, I'm going to be God, and so we take the fruit. We, we're punished because of it. Man has to till the soil, work hard to, to get a less than satisfactory yield. And women have to have pain during childbearing. And the serpent, he's got to slither around on his belly all his life. But there's another promise there, isn't there? There's another promise there. That a descendant from Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise his heel. By the way, Adam comes before Abraham. Abraham is the one man who's pulled out who will later become the nation of Israel. The promise to, to Adam happens before the nation of Israel even exists. That all the world will be rescued through the Messiah. Why does this matter to us? I've asked this question before, and, and, I, and I always find it interesting. We've got a couple of different people here that I don't know your pedigrees of. And so anybody in here Jewish in any way? Nobody? There's only one person that regularly attends this church that has any Jewish heritage. But we're all Gentiles. And so we look at this passage, we go, well, good, I'm glad that Paul says it. It's very nice that we can, be entered, we, can, we can be saved by Christ too. That's not what Paul's talking about. Because, yes, it is nice. Yes, it is. It's very good for us because if not, then none of us would be, none of us would be here. None of us would be followers of Christ. We'd all be... I think, I think spiritually speaking, we're all Jews. Here's what I mean by that. 
when, when Paul's talking about this, he's talking about, he's talking about a reality of those people who have, who have been with God. People who maybe grew up in the church or grew up in the, in the faith. People who have been taught from a young age the stories of the Bible. Or, or maybe more, more challenging, people who look different than us. And who act different than us. Who don't have the same foundations than us. Maybe if we would move this church into the inner city, we would have a very difficult time inviting the inner city into this church. Right? Because we all have opinions. We all have desires. We all have these. So here's what Paul says. Here's what Paul says. I think, I think what ultimately he's getting at. He's like, listen. Listen for a moment. Christ came to die for his people and for all people. See, as we've been, we've been traveling through, what does it mean? What does it mean for the gospel to take effect in my life? It changes the way I interact with people. I serve. I think of others before I think of myself. It changes the way I interact with the society. I submit to God's plan and authority before myself. It changes the way I interact with the people of my church. I don't think of my own opinions. I think of your needs and your desires and your hurts and struggles and your weaknesses before I think of my strengths. It changes the, it changes the way I think about everything in my life. In, in fact, it changes the way I think about everybody that I interact with. Let me ask you a question. I hope it's as challenging to you as it was to me. Are there Gentiles in your lives? Are there people that you can think of? Individual people or groups of people? Who you think, to, who you think are outside of the family? Let me, let me clarify something for you. You do. We all do part of our human nature. It's part of our broken and flawed selves. We all have people that we would either cross the street to avoid or for some reason we can always find an excuse not to tell them about Christ. It's challenging. And, and yet, Paul says, Christ died for Everyone. And that was always the plan. It was always the plan. And then he goes on. And I love this verse. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If there's one thing that I have learned in preaching through Romans is that I can't do it myself. From, from my own salvation to all the things that Paul has taught me and told me to be, I am very selfish. You are all very selfish. Selfish. 
Even the most humble among us are, in fact, we're very selfish. And Paul says, Paul says this last little spurt of, of encouragement. It's not, it's not about a family that you've been born in. It's not about who you, who you know or what kind of person you are. Christ died for you. Christ died for them, maybe is how we should be thinking about it. And we should challenge ourselves to so who are we to say anything otherwise. But the most important thing that Paul says here is he says, he says listen, because did you notice he shifted? He's no, longer, he's no longer explaining to us how we should be acting. Paul just, he just put out his hand and he, he just spoke a blessing upon each and every one of us. He says, may the God of hope fill you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What's hope? Hope is not believing in something that that maybe happens. Hope is a trust. It's an anticipation of something that already is confirmed. That hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is what we have as believers. To abound in it means to overflow with it. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are incapable of holding it in. Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9. If you've never read that verse, go look it up. I cannot hold it in. I cannot hold it in because I am contained. I am am a container of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is far bigger and more potent than I am. So what should we do? We should love. We should love with servant hearts. We should submit with full trust in God's plan. We should be patient with those who are around us. Most of all, we should abound in hope. We should abound in hope, knowing and trusting that the Holy Spirit fills us and the Holy Spirit makes us abound. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that We thank you that in our depravity, you didn't leave us. But you redeemed us. We thank you that you sent your son to be the payment that we so desperately needed. That you gave us your son freely. gave us his his blood freely 
that we might be justified in your sight. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that dwells in us. And we thank you that as we look at these these commands, these exhortations from Paul to live lives of unconditional love, and as we see and recognize that by ourselves we will never accomplish them, we thank you that your spirit dwells in us. And that by his power, we are transformed in the image of your son who in every way represents and shows us what true unconditional love is. Lord, we thank you that the most perfect and precious picture of love is the cross. That each and every day, each and every week, we can fixate our attention upon it. That it can mold and transform us. That it can move and guide us as we live out our lives here on earth. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts. It's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name. Amen.